Jason Waller here, True Underdog Podcast and YouTube channel. Listen, make sure you subscribe today. You can go to iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You can go to our YouTube channel, True Underdog, or you can visit trueunderdog.com and subscribe to all of it. Damn, damn, damn. True Underdog. Jason Waller here, true underdog. We've got a super podcast for you today. I've got a great guest. He's got high energy. He's got a great story to share. He's got information out there to change your life and tell you it's okay to overcome adversity and struggles and any kind of objects in your way. You break that shit down and you take it to the next level. My man here, JT McCormick, president and CEO of Scribe Media. It's a publishing company that he's helped over 1,500 authors and entrepreneurs go out and print their magazine, I mean, uh, their books. And you also won the Entrepreneur Magazine, recently ranked Scribe as the number one top company culture in America. How are you doing, JT? My man, Jason, with a Y. What's up, sir? Yeah, with a Y, <laughs> baby. That's right. Not a lot of people recognize that. I'm glad you did. My my, my dad's name was William J-A-Y, so I'm William J-A-Y, son. So I, <laughs> I, 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 I told my son, I said, I'm going to call you Jason, said son. And he's like, no, dad. I'm like, no, it's fine. He's like, no. So... So how you doing, JT? Things good? I am excellent, always excellent. If you wake up in the morning and your feet hit the ground, damn it, you got to be excellent. That's right. That's right. Well, we were talking here for a few minutes and you've got some high energy and you're excited. You're in Austin, Texas right now. How's the weather in Austin? Oh man, beautiful today. I believe we'll be about 82. Uh, nice, sunny. Man, yeah, it's 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 wonderful here. And, and as I said to you, and we have no state income tax, so it's a beautiful thing. Everybody's got to start moving to Texas, save on those taxes. <laughs> yeah. and, hey, and not to get political, but depending on the election, taxes might go up. Hey, got to be careful. Yes, yes. Be careful. De- depending I don't like on this taxes. election, man. I, I don't like paying I, taxes. Yes, I am not a fan of uh, – I, I saw a tweet from 50 Cent the other day. He was watching CNBC Power Lunch, and he quoted where, you know, hey, what is the 62% taxes? I mean, break that down, man. That means if you make $100, $62 is going to taxes. Are you kidding me? No way. I, uh, I, I, I saw a meme that it said, not 50 cent. He's now 20 cent, right? Because he's going to pay too much taxes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, snap. And I'm a big 50 fan. So for him to come out and really share with everybody, like, look, this is a problem. I mean, taxes for the first time ever, and I'm in the solar industry, people are making more money and they're investing. Our business is growing and booming, but it's because they have more money and, you know, running a business and you're running a business. People got to understand that when companies save money on taxes, they're able to invest in the people and grow. And so hopefully, you know, people look at that when, when they go to vote. I mean, I'm not saying who I'm voting for. I'm just saying, I don't like taxes. That's I did that, man. It's all I'm saying. I don't like taxes. I hate tax. It's not how much you make. It's how much you keep. And, and so what, what's interesting too, is I say this, you know, this we're, we're both first generation money. And what what's interesting, tax the hell out of me when I die. If you don't want to have, you know, put a big inheritance tax. I'm fine with that. My kids have, will live a lifestyle where they can create opportunity all that they can. So I'm fine with that. But taxing first generation money, you know, you're, you're, you're taxing me and you're penalizing me for going out and doing well for myself. And man, that just doesn't set well with me. Yeah, no, you said it perfectly. I agree 100%. You're adding jobs, you're building a business, you're helping folks out, and then they want to take from you. I agree. The inheritance tax is, is a good idea. People that didn't earn it, tax the crap out of them. But if we're working hard and we're grinding, 
let us bring some more home. We're okay. The government's okay. So I agree with you. So listen, I want to. I want the folks out there, the the listeners, the viewers, the YouTubers, everybody watching the show. I want them to know who you are and your story. And I just explained about your company, but go ahead and give us the the ninety second commercial on what it is you're doing at Scribe Media and how you guys are successful. And then I'm going to get into your journey. So, man, what we do, we help authors uh, write, publish, and market their books. And I'll throw out a couple of big names that most people are going to know. So we, we published David Goggins' book, Can't Hurt Me, uh, one of the biggest selling memoirs of all time. I'm a big David fan, by the way. Big so, fan. Yeah, I mean, if D- David's my guy. I, lo- I love that guy. So we, we did his book. A couple other ones that people know, the actress Tiffany Haddish. We worked with Nassim Taleb. Um, one of my favorites, the Nobel Peace Prize Committee, that, that just speaks volume of, of our quality and, and what we bring to the table. So, but the fact of the matter is that 98% of our authors are you know, CEOs, business owners, consultants, things of that nature. So yeah, we've worked with uh, over 1,700 authors now. Wow. Congrats. And look, I'm excited. I'm getting ready to do a book. I'm hope, you know, be signing something up with you guys here to do that. Cause I don't even know where to start or end. <laughs> I just know that I got a story to share out there and I want to get it out there. And I, you know, I, I'm excited to, to partner with you guys on that. So let's get right to it. So you had a tough upbringing, right? You grew up in Dayton, Ohio, mixed race male. Father was a drug dealing pimp. That's what I read. Mother was a white single mother on welfare. Uh, you faced a lot of traumas. You had racism, poverty, juvenile detention, all kinds of obstacles, things that are going on today that still in this world that we live in that people have to overcome, right? You were right in the thick of that. And, and it, it wasn't like you were black or you were white. You were, you were mixed. You had both sides giving you grief, I would imagine. I've got a couple of mixed friends had similar stories where it was hard for them to be accepted back in the day. So let's talk about that. What was it like as a child going through, you know, your early years going through that process? Man, Jason, oh God, man, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. Of all the podcasts I've been on, talk, so on and so forth, no one has ever pointed that out. Black people didn't like me because I was half white. White people didn't like me because I was half black. So you had a a complete identity problem. You had nowhere to fit in. Black people would call me Uncle Tom, sellout, white boy. uh, And and then white people would would call me the special N-word. You were constantly called zebra, half-breed, Oreo cookie, color-confused. So, yeah, it was rough in the 70s. You know, what I point out to people as well, what people need to realize is I was not technically legally allowed to be born until 1967. Mixed race marriage was illegal in this country until 1967, man. Wow. And and so that's not even that long ago. That's crazy. No. So like I barely made the cutoff. And so it's, it's, Really interesting to see, because you're right, we're still dealing with a lot of these dynamics right now. You know, being sexually abused by one of my my father's prostitutes at the ages of six, seven, and eight. Man, yeah, I've come through some things, a lot, lot of chaos, a lot of fractured background. Uh, you know this, to, to this day, I still don't know where my last name comes from. My mom got that last name as an orphan in the orphanage back in the, the 1950s. Man, I have no clue where this last name comes from, but uh, I wear it. I wear it well. It's my legacy piece. My kids have it. My wife has it now. And so, but I, I never let any of those things define me. And, you know, I, I navigated the the chaos and, and here I am. 
That's crazy. And, and, you know, growing up, you know, in the seventies with, you're right. I've had a lot of friends, you know, growing up in Arizona and North Carolina, I've had a lot of diverse friends along the way, right? Hispanic, black, mixed, a lot of friends on every element you can think of. And I watched and witnessed it with a, a friend of mine in North Carolina that had exactly what you were talking about. A lot of black kids would make fun of him and a lot of white kids would make fun of him. And he struggled with that. And so when I can see how that is, is, a, is a hatred on both sides because they feel like you don't belong and you're right in the dead middle, right? So not only was that tough, but then your dad wasn't around, I read, right? So he, he kind of disappeared. And so your mom had to step up and be your support mechanism until you moved in with your uncle, Yeah, right? So t- let's talk about that. So, all right. So let, let, let's talk about that. Actually, the way that went down, how I ended up with, with my uncle. So my mother ended up facing uh, welfare fraud. She, you know, accepted food stamps, but she was working and, and shouldn't, you know, you, you weren't supposed to do that back then. So I ended up being shipped off to live with my father for a little bit. And my, and my father, t- for people to understand this, my father had 23 children. I'm one oh. of 23. Yeah. So, wow. Have you reached out to all of them? Have you done the DNA and me 23.com thing? It's get this. So I, my father passed away three years ago and I went back to his funeral. I had not seen my father since I was 15 years old. When I left Dayton at 15, I knew I had 18 brothers and sisters and I had met all but two. Now here's what's funny. I come back to Dayton in, in my mid forties for my dad's funeral and I meet five brothers and sisters I never knew I had because they they weren't born yet. And so it, it, it was insane that I was standing in a room with my half brothers and sisters and I could have walked on the street and not known they were related to me. That is so, I mean, it's so fortunate that you guys can connect and meet like that and still not know what your history was, what you guys have been through. You don't know their story, but you're right. You, unfortunately for your father's passing, but you guys get together. And now do you stay in touch with a lot of your family members? You know, I only, I only stay in touch with the three half brothers and sisters that, that I was the closest with. We, we kind of grew up together to your point about chaos and how I ended up with my uncle. My dad, one day I was living with my dad, one of his prostitutes and three of my half brothers and sisters. And my dad comes home one day and he says, hey, I'm going to England. He just breaks out. He leaves. And he leaves me with the prostitute. And this prostitute's a, a horrific heroin addict, horrible. And one Sunday afternoon, she leaves and she says, I'll be back. I'm going to get a pack of cigarettes. Man, I'll I'll spare you the details, Jason, but she was gone for three weeks. It was February in Dayton, Ohio. I was supposed to be in school, but I I made a commitment and a promise. I was like, okay, I'm not going to leave my brothers and sisters. But on a few occasions, you know, several times within that three weeks, I had to leave my four-year-old half-sister, she was the oldest, to babysit the three-year-old, the two-year-old, so I could go down to the store and steal food. And man, it used to stress me out that I would think, man, if I get caught down here and I get arrested, my brothers and sisters are at the house, what's going to happen? And for three weeks, man, Jason, I have never to this day, you and I are both in business, so we know what it's like to, I need to close this deal, I need to make payroll, I need to scale the company. Man, to this day, I'm 49 years old now, I have never felt a greater stress than every hour wondering if they were going to disconnect the water or their electricity in February in Dayton, Ohio, wondering, are, are we going to freeze to death? Are, are we not going to have any water to drink, not be able to flush the toilet or take a bath? And so 
I had figured out the food thing. You know, I'd go down and steal and I'd come back. But my little brother was two and he was still in diapers. And I'm like, man, I can't steal diapers. So I potty trained him, man. I, I sat him on the toilet one day and he's crying. I'm crying. And I look at how him. How old I, are you? By the way, how old are 12. you during that? I was 12 years old. 12. Okay. And, and wow. so I, I, I set him down. And I look at him, Jason, and, and I, I look at him and I say, hey, man, until something comes out, this is how it's going down. <laughs> And so you have four kids. I got four kids. Now, I didn't potty train my kids that way. But at the time, I was 12 years old. I didn't know what to do. So that that's how I potty trained them. And fast forward, the prostitute came back after three weeks. My brothers and sisters were happy to see her. That's their mom. Wasn't my mom, though. And I, I looked at her and I said, where the F have you been? And she beat the hell out of me, man. She My, my ears started bleeding. She kicked me. She punched me. I ran away. And I got brought back to the house, and the second beating was worse than the first. By the grace of God, man, one of my dad's uh, brothers, my uncle, picked me up, took me to another one of his, my dad's girlfriend's house, and I stayed with her. And the first week was good, but Friday evening came around, and her boys went with their father. I stayed with her. This woman was a bad alcoholic. She started beating me. I'm tired of getting beat at this point, man. So I fight back. I hit her. I kick her. She calls the police. I get arrested, and I go to juvenile. Now, hold on, Jason. Here's, here's the whole catch of all of this. My mother was in Texas and didn't know where I was. My father's in England, and literally, only God knew where he was. I'm in juvenile, and no one knew I was there. And I was stuck there for almost three months, man. Uh, and that's how I ended up with my Uncle Bobby for about 15, 18 months. And then after that, at age 15, I got reunited with my mother in Texas. And I, I read that he was kind of a, a role model, kind of led you on to kind of get on the right path. You want to explain that a little bit? Man, my, my Uncle Bobby, for a boy especially, he got me at a very critical time. I was 13 years old, and I had never had any structure, any discipline, any routine. And my Uncle Bobby was all of those things. And I got to share my favorite story with you. My Uncle Bobby taught me punctuality. He taught me respect. He taught me about God. He taught me about discipline, following through, give your word, you keep your word. He taught me all of these things in like a 15-month time frame. Here's my favorite story, and this will tell you everything you need to know about Uncle Bobby. You got, you, got, you got to listen to this, Jason. So my Uncle Bobby, we're going on church vacation one year. First of all, I had never been on vacation, so I didn't even know what that was. But my Uncle Bobby Friday night says, hey, tomorrow morning, we're leaving at 10 a.m. sharp. And if my Uncle Bobby said something, you follow through. He never yelled, never raised his voice. He said, we're leaving at 10 a.m. So the next day, it's about 930 and my aunt and my four cousins, my aunt says, hey, Bobby, I'm going to run up to the store and get those cashews that you like. And my Uncle Bobby said, no, you forgot something. Don't blame that on me. And he goes, I'm leaving at 10 o'clock. Fast forward, man, it's about 5 till 10. And I said, hey, Uncle Bobby, I'm going to run upstairs and get my football. And he says, son, I know what you're doing. I'm leaving at 10 o'clock. I come back downstairs. I run to the end of the driveway. I look for my aunt. My Uncle Bobby says, let's go. He shuts the doors to the van. We get in. He starts the car. Jason, we leave my aunt and four cousins oh, on family. Wait a minute. Family church vacation. How godly is that? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> left them there because they weren't ready at 10 o'clock. They weren't ready at 10 o'clock. And we left, man. And we so we took off. And this is back in like 
early 80s. So there's no cell phones and, and, and communication tools back then. So we leave and I quickly forget about my, my aunt and cousins because I'm like, hey, Uncle Bobby's got the money. This is great. I've never been on vacation. We get to our destination. Lo and behold, who shows up about four hours later? My aunt and my cousins. My aunt walks in the hotel room. She gets in my Bobby, my Uncle Bobby's face, and she goes to town. And he stands there stone-faced. And she's just, Bobby, da 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 I can't believe, da 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 And she goes on five minutes. She finishes, and he, he looks at her, and he says, are you finished? And she goes, yes. He, and, and calmly, Jason, he said, I said 10 o'clock. And, I, and <laughs> that, that was the moment I was like, oh, wow. shit. That's gangster right there. Like, yes. That's it. That's it. I said 10 o'clock. And for that right there, in that moment, 13 years old, punctuality became the key for me, man. And, it became and I, real right there. It became really real. And, and I share this with everybody. I said, look, if you're going on your first job interview or, or any job interview, get there 30 minutes early. I've never met a person that missed an opportunity or got fired for being 30 minutes early. But I know a ton of people who have lost an opportunity or been fired for being two minutes late. Yeah, that's very that's a true statement right there. You're absolutely right. And that's, dude, I'm trying to imagine seeing that. <laughs> I, that that's gangster. I got to do a better job on my kids. Like, guys, like we're leaving to Disney now. Now. That's it. You know, my wife carries a, a big pimp hand. That would be hard for me. But I can totally see how that at 13 years old, can become reality for you. Like this is, this is how this works. And that's, that's a, it's a good dude to learn from. So quickly after that, you know, you, uh, you, where did you move after that? Oh man. Okay. So, so Jason, you might kick me off your show after this, but I'm, I'm going to ask you something kindly. If you could do for me, never again, say pimp hand. You got to remember, okay. man, I was raised by a pimp. I've watched the back of a pimp's hand go across the face of a woman and, and it's funny, man, because our society somewhere went left. And, you know, back in, back in the day of pimp, my father put women on a corner, you know, and he took every dollar. And, and it didn't matter. If you didn't have his money, you got the back of the pimp hand. And it's funny because now so many people will say, pimp my ride, pimp my apartment. And we lost track of what that word really means. And, and having grown up, seeing the back of a pimp's hand, it, it just, it strikes a different chord with me. And, and so, yeah, I, I had to throw that out there to you, man. No, no. And my, my apologies. I probably shouldn't have said that at all. So you're right. I'm one of those that really probably have used the word uh, the, the wrong way in time. So thank you for keeping it real with me on that. I, I had to, man. Uh, so you asked me, when did I end up back with my mom? Man, I got with my mom when I was 15 years old. We got reunited in Texas uh, and, and I'll tell you tell you the story, man. I reunited with her. She took me to school, and they put me in <laughs> they put me in these classes. The counselor says you're going to be in this, 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 and this. And then she said geometry. Jason, I had never heard the word geometry before. <laughs> so six weeks rolls around. I get my report card. I've got all D's and F's. They figure out, okay, this kid's not too bright. Uh, and, and my mother has me tested, and I'm testing on a fifth and sixth grade level, man. To this day, I don't hold a pencil the right way. I read slow as hell. Can't tell you an adverb from an adjective. But hey, I'm a CEO. I'm a CEO of a publishing company, so uh, it, it's it's right. So, but what was interesting, man? You know, I never graduated. 
you know, graduation rolled around. I didn't have enough credits. I, I had to go to summer school, got my GED. Now it says high school diploma on there. So damn it, I got a high school diploma, but make no mistake, I got my GED. But yeah, it, it's, I, I never let my circumstances define who I am. I, I just refuse to be a victim. I, I can't change who my father was. I can't change the, the circumstances I was born into, but I can change the next day, the next week, the next hour. You're saying something that I think that is important for the listeners to hear, right? You didn't make an excuse and you didn't play the victim. You saw opportunity with the relationships you had with your uncle to say, hey, let, let me learn from him. He's teaching me the right things of being a man, having punctuality, things I can be better on. You go back to your mom, she gets you back into school. You're trying to grind and do your thing. There were no excuses for you. And too many times, especially in today's society, everybody has an excuse. And those that are successful and have done anything, everybody has their own issues. And your story is remarkable and it is hard. You know, your story and my wife's story, my wife's story is pretty tough too. I look at, and look, my, my I just grew up broke, a little bit of abuse and in a trailer park, right? I had none of the challenges you had, but I didn't make an excuse either. Your challenges were much harder than mine. You had everything stacked against you from, from race to poverty to you name it, drugs, prostitutes, everything against the, the cards are stacked. You shouldn't have even finished high school or GED. You shouldn't even got that far. But not only did you do that, you use those experiences, those, those issues in your life to be lessons, it seems like, and motivation to what not to be. Would you agree? Oh, totally. I, I, you know, some people will, will make the excuse as a victim. Oh, well, my dad did this. My dad did that. Uh, you know, be, be it he was an alcoholic or he was abusive or, or whatever the case may be. And I look at it as, okay, my dad taught me what not to be. So that's a lesson in itself. And I, I did choose this as well. He did have some lessons for me. Matter, matter of fact, you, you got to let me tell the story, Jason. So this is, a, this is a harsh ass lesson, but one of the greatest lessons that my dad ever gave me. So on one of those rare occasions he picked me up, it was a weekend and I, I don't know, I'm, I'm seven, eight years old and we're walking through the grocery store. I have no clue why, but we're walking through the grocery store. This little girl I go to school with walks by me and she says, hi, Javon. And my, my actual name's Javon. And I didn't say anything. I was a shy little kid and I feel this massive blow to the back of my head and my face falls to the ground. It, it hits the, the, the floor. My nose is bleeding. My lips swollen. And the next thing I know, I've got a forearm in my neck pinned up against the, the uh, frozen food door. And my dad's like two inches from my face. And he looks at me and he says, like in, in this mean, calm voice, I don't care who it is. You say hello, be kind, show respect, and hold doors for everyone. And I, in that moment right there, man, if you see me right now, I say hello to everyone. I am respectful to everyone and I hold the door for everyone. And it came from that moment. I don't see that moment as, oh my God, I was abused. My dad, he, he abused me and he, he made my nose bleed. I see it as, man, that was a hell of a gift that I was given right there. You know, I just watched Tony Robbins, uh, My Guru. Have you seen that yet? No, I haven't seen it. Okay, so I wasn't a big Tony Robbins fan, but I watched that recently, and now I'm a huge fan. And one of the things he was talking to a young lady about, she had abuse from her father, 
And, and it was a sexual abuse, but it was physical and verbal abuse and the acceptance and all these things. And so she had resentment and anger towards him and blamed him for things. But Tony told her, and it's exactly what you said, not only are you blaming him for the bad things you went through, but you need to blame him and appreciate the things that you still learned from. So if you're going to blame the bad, you need to blame the good because that's who, what makes you who you are. And you just gave a good example of that. Like, look, most people to look at like, that's what happened. You took it as a lesson that is instilled in you that has actually defied who you are when you open a door for someone. You've got kids, two, two daughters, how polite you are. You're showing, hey, men open doors for women and they're very kind and polite to people. That's a big deal that I think that that people forget and they just blame their past or blame people that come in. We can still get good things from, from bad situations or, or, or bad people. You can still learn things from that. You you can learn. You have to look back on your situations and learn. Like I said, you heard you heard me say, being in that house left alone with my half brothers and sisters, greatest stress I've ever felt. But it, you know how well that has served me in business because I'm like, oh, okay, I need to close a deal. We need to make payroll, income statements, balance sheets. What? Okay, I, I've got all that because the the stress that came in that house is nothing compared to this. Uh, you know, so my dad, yeah, it's, I choose to look at what he did show me. Yeah, he didn't pick me up, but here's the lesson in that. I always keep my word to my children. If I say I'm going to be at your school for, for bike day, I'm going to be at your school for bike day because my dad didn't show up. So, so I, I choose to look at that as a lesson and not harbor resentment for it. No, I love that. And I, I agree with you. I think that that I wouldn't change anything in my past. And I don't think even though you, you wouldn't change yours, there's no regrets because it defies who you are, the good and the bad and the lessons learned and the lessons you don't want to turn into for your children. So I think it's important to know that. So you got in, you got in business and you started working at a company uh, where you were the lowest paid employee there and you rose to the top really to, to be running the company, right? Let's talk about that because what, what's really cool about that is now you have some motivation behind you. You've been literally through hell and you've overcome it. So it doesn't get as hard as what you've been through. And that's what you just said, running a business. It's like you're calm, cool, and collective because you've seen the worst of the worst. So this is just hey, I've got this, right? What was it like to start at the bottom? Because I love those stories where you start at the lowest point and you worked your way all the way to the top. Oh, man. It, it's um, it's interesting because it wasn't the first time that that I had done it. I did it in the payday loans when, when I was 23 years old. I did it in mortgages. Then I did it in software. So it's specifically to what you're talking about, I was the lowest paid person at the software company. My role was to close deals. I was, I was the sales guy. I sat on a fold-out metal chair in the storage closet and, and made my calls. There was 13 of us. And I, I went from making those calls, not even knowing what I was really selling, but calling, calling competitors to hear their pitch. How are they doing this? Why, what, what's going on? And, you know, it took me a good six, seven months to close my first deal and I closed my first deal. I kept closing deals. I, got, I you know, perfected my craft, if, if you will. And then I got promoted to uh, EVP of sales and marketing. Then, you know, now it was, okay, how do you build a team to be able to do this? Then we built a team to be able to do it. And from there, within two years, I went from lowest paid person 
in the storage closet to president of the company. Now, very key point to this, man, I was surrounded by some really smart software engineers. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's the thing. You saw an opportunity too many times. Do we look at the, the negative and things and we miss the the horse that comes by. And you you took the time. You didn't quit early. You stayed in the moment. You craft, You mastered your craft six. A lot of people would have quit early. I can't do this. How am I going to say? They wouldn't have called competitors. They wouldn't have done all the things you did. And, and to be street smart and as savvy as you were to really get to that point to get that first deal. And then it was like, oh, I'm addicted to getting this deal. This is nice. You should continue to sell and then you can scale it. Then you're building it up. I mean, that's remarkable because too many times people miss that opportunity. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting, Jason. I, man, I appreciate you put it that way. So I, so many people have said to me, you know, how, how did you, how, why does it no bother you? And, and I explained to them, as a kid, there were times where I would come home and I would ask, what are we going to eat for dinner? Are we going to eat dinner? No. Do we have any food? No. Okay, those no's hurt because I couldn't do anything to change my circumstances. But when I was in the in that that storage closet making my calls, and my role was to call on the Fortune 1000 companies, my attitude was, wait a minute, okay, I'll call this one. If they say no, I've got 999 more people. Someone's going to say yes. I am going to keep calling and keep calling. And, and what's, what's amazing to me, and I say this, and, and if people are offended by it, so what? 90% of all salespeople suck. And, and if you're offended by that comment, you fall in the 90%. So I like that. You're right. Because here's the thing. People send out a few emails and, and they do a few follow-ups. Oh, I can't. No one's calling me back. No one's. No, keep going. Keep going. And, and so that's always been my mentality is you only fail if you stop trying. Yeah. No, and you're right on the sales thing. I have an 80-20 rule at my company that I believe... First, I believe 20% of the of the staff do 80% of the work. And the next 60% do the other 20%. And I require our directors, we have almost 1,600 employees, to terminate or move on from 20% of their staff every month because of what you just said. It's a requirement because that's the only way you grow. You need new blood. You need people that it's not just a shelf life and a job, but it's a career. It's a culture. It's what they want to be about. It's something they want to grow into. And you got to get people that are hungry and are, and are really rowing the same way as the entire organization and leadership team and all the employees, you're right. And, and too many times, especially with sales, cause I'm a sales guy that, you know, runs the company, right? You're a sales guy that, you know, people that settle and get to the top and just sit there, they're not great. And the people that just make enough money and they're happy, they're not great. It's when it's never enough and you never quit and you keep going and you keep going. And in order to have a company go like this, you've got to move on from some of the staff. We're not UPS. We're not looking to stay this, right? right. We're not the post office. Like <laughs> We want to grow. And in order to grow, you got to churn and burn the bottom ones that are holding everyone back. And you've got to put competition and scale it up. And I always say, if I ever ran a school, which I don't, I would post the grades on the door every time a child walked in because then they would see where they rank. I believe competition brings greatness in every aspect of life. And I think when you see where you're measured, that things you can control, then I think it's important for that to see that rather than make excuses and, oh, that's why they're better than me. I like everyone to see their, their KPIs, key, key performance indicators, or what their results are every day. We have a dashboard in every department. So everybody knows where they rank. They know I'm in that bottom 20%. I could get fired. And that's a different mentality, right? And so 
that's kind of how we build it. But you said it perfectly when you said 90% suck. I would agree with you. It's because they get stuck in their own way and they get satisfied. And that's not a real salesperson. That's an order taker that finds those that say yes. And then they're not hungry to look for, you know, to keep banging on those calls or those doors to get more. They got, they got the order taken and they moved on. Totally. It, it's, it's interesting. You putting that all together, I've heard so many people talk about, uh, you know, this This is the hot topic in our country right now. And, and I say this being half white, half black. You hear people talk about privilege, privilege. You know, oh, they're, they're privileged. They, they have privilege. And, and I've even heard people say, well, it's unfair that I had to work a hundred times harder than that person to, to get where they are. And for me, nothing is ever going to be fair. Life just isn't fair. I learned that shit back at five years old. But but what where I have the mentality of, if I had to work 100 times harder than you to get to where I am, my attitude also is, I'm also 100 times better than you because you didn't have to do the things that I did to get to where we are. So I just adopt the mentality of, What's my mindset when I'm getting there? Mindset, choices, and hard work equals success. Mindset for me is is just how do I continue to strive to get to where I want to go? And and I hate the way we've destroyed the, the word privilege in our country. You know, I've got four kids. I don't ever want my kids to feel embarrassed because they live this life that they're in. That's bullshit to, to sit there and say that somebody that comes from a two-parent home, lives in a, a great community, goes to private. Oh, they're privileged. That, it shouldn't be said to be a negative thing. Yes, they are well off. Yes, they were born into a, a great set of parents. But what a lot of people miss on this I feel privileged to have been born into the circumstances I was born into because I learned I learned so much shit that most people are never going to know in this world. Nope. They'll never have the thick skin you have or the work ethic you have or the calm and cool uh, attitude under pressure of not getting stressed out and breaking that you've experienced. That I mean, that's exactly the point. You hit it right on the nail that nobody knows how people got successful or where they come from or what's going on. And it's hard to label privilege. And you're right. You, you wouldn't change it because I love my kids dearly. And where I have failed a little bit is maybe giving a little too much where it's hard for them to stand on their feet. I've got my kids are a little older than yours. So my oldest daughter, she is a wonderful mother, right? She is great. She's got a, a year and a half old daughter and she's pregnant again, but she struggles to adult. Like, what do I want to do, you know, as I grow up? Dad, what? and I said, "Look, honey, it does right now. It doesn't matter." And and where I have failed is I have coddled and been there every single time, rather than making them tough or learn things like we've had to learn, especially with your situation. Like you have got to overcome things, and for our kids, it's going to be a little harder. But that's why we overcame it. That's why we worked our ass off. So they didn't have to, and that doesn't make them privileged because they're a part of us who have worked our asses off to put them in that position. And I'm a big believer, like you said, if you've got to work a thousand times harder than somebody else, like you just said, to have that position, not only you're a thousand times better, but then you a thousand times deserve it because nobody wants anything given to them because then they know they always screw it up. They don't know how to appreciate it. I mean, I always say this and people get upset, but self-made is so much different than Silver Spoon. And I love when I'm around Silver Spoon, I'm like, look, I eat dudes like this for breakfast. Like, I love that <laughs> shit. And there was a time early on in my career, I was intimidated. I was intimidated by people who worked for me who had a college education or even had a real high school education or they had an MD, whatever it was. I used to be intimidated, like, these guys are so much better than me. And then eventually I had to break as I was a young entrepreneur and go, nah, 
this is my show. This is my deal. You work for me. There's a reason for that. I've got to be the leader that you need me to be. So I completely changed my attitude and came in and was like, look, this is what we're doing. I don't give a shit what my background is or your background is. We're doing it this way. We're going to be successful this way. You're either in or you're out. And it kind of gave me that mentality over time where now I'm never insecure about that. But I, I had to struggle through that. Did you have to struggle through that early on in your career? Oh, man. Matter of fact, um, it wasn't until I'd say the last four years that that actually went away. So my, my, my co-founder, Tucker Max, uh, talk, talk about, I, so I grew up completely uh, in, in my business career, intimidated by who had a degree, who had the letters after their names, because I didn't have those things. It, it, you heard me joke earlier. I said long before I had the current three letters after my name, CEO, I had three other letters. They were GED. And so that's all the only letters I, I had. But I was always intimidated by people who had those academic credentials. And Tucker pulled me aside one day. And keep in mind, Tucker went to the University of Chicago and has a law degree from Duke. So this is someone who's highly educated and, ha and has some serious names after, after his name. And he pulled me to the side and he said, hey, man, I want you to know something. All those people that you, you think you're intimidated by, they're actually more intimidated by you. And I go, how's that? He goes, because they're wondering, wow, did I just get here because of who my parents are? Did I get here because I'm a legacy person and that's how I got into college because my dad knew this person who got me an interview and I got, so they're always wondering, are they truly as good as they are or did they get there because so many doors were automatically open for them? They said, they're intimidated of you because they see where you came from and they know that you actually know some shit. Yeah. No, dude, that's, he said that perfect on. I never looked at it that way. I always, and that's a good way to look at it. I looked at it similar to where it was, they invested their money. Maybe they're in debt from going to college and they're not using that degree working for me. So they've got to be intimidated. I had to turn my brain on to go, how can I control this situation? Because I would have to do a sales meeting early on in home security and look at guys that not only were older than me by 10 or 15 years, but like you said, had letters after their name because they had college degrees somewhere. And I was intimidated for a while. And then eventually I was like, I, I can't, I, there's a reason they work for me. I've got to own the room. And you know, you you get through moments in life. It, it it just doesn't turn on and it stays that way forever. You'll meet people along the way. At least I believe this. And as people evolve, you meet people and you go, well, I'm a little intimidated by that guy. Like, that guy's worth billions. And dude, I, you know, I might be a millionaire. I ain't a billionaire. But I, I had that recently. I got to sit down and do a roundtable with President Trump about solar energy. And it was, it was right before he caught COVID. But I was in a room with a lot of people. Uh, one of them was from Texas. She was I'm trying to remember her name, Kathy Adams or something. She owns a bunch of oil. She was best friends with Jerry Jones. But some of these people I met with, they were all billionaires. And I'm like, I had about 15 seconds, JT, where I was there and I was like, I'm not supposed to be here. I had to pinch myself. I'm like, I'm gonna go to the restroom. I had to throw water on my face. This just happened. And go, hold on, Jay, get your shit together. Like, what are you doing? Like, dude, you're, you're self-made. You run a, almost a billion dollar company, does 800 million in revenue. You know, you built it from the ground up. You didn't have to go to school. Everything's on experiences and hard work. You know, you've done everything you're supposed to do. You, you run a podcast, get out there and own the damn room, right? And to get back out there, I'm chest bumping, high-fiving, elbowing, <laughs> like, this is my shit, right? And I'm telling people like, yeah, I'm, Jay, I'm Jason Wall. So yeah, I let them know. And 
you, solar you have energy, to damn it. That's right, baby. Like, <laughs> bam, I let them know. Like, that's what we're doing. And, you know, same thing when, when the president came out and, you know, whether you're voting Republican or Democrats, irrelevant. My business, my whole argument to him, and it really wasn't an argument. He listened and we had a great 12-minute conversation, which was amazing. I got to explain to him that solar is not Republican or Democrat, it's American. And that, that, you know, and people got to quit trying to use it against each other. And I had him agree. And we wanted to get a soundbite that we can put at the end of our website. And like, hey, you know, even President Trump loves American solar, right? Whatever we could do to help the business. But I watched him help a few people out that I was told from the RNC chair, Ronna McDaniel, like, all right, well, you might not get to talk to him because, you know, there's 25 people at that round table. And I said, nah, girl, I'm a bully. I'm going to talk to him, right? So I'm not the guy that comes up from Harvard and does this. Hi, Mr. President. I'm like, uh, Mr. Trump, Jason Waller here. Like, I let him know, right? But you have that same energy and charisma. And that's what makes people like you and me, in my opinion, really great to be an entrepreneur and a vision for the company because we're using, and you especially, experience and failures and being told no and things you've had to overcome and in intimidation, whether it be you're intimidated by someone who's got a college education or more experience than you or intimidated by someone who had more money than you or intimidated by anything. They lived in a better lifestyle than yours. All of those things molded you, JT, to be who you are, to be so successful, to have a wonderful family, to have four beautiful kids, to be able to help 1,700 writers write a book and, and do something they want to do in their life. I mean, think about this. You got a GED and you own a, a, a company that allows people to write books, dude. Like, that's like full circle, legit right there, right? You know, you know, a big one for me, Jason, is, is as a kid, some of the schools I went to, they were so bad that the teachers did not allow the students to take their books home at night be, with, for fear that the books wouldn't come back. And now I sit here and I'm like, and now we publish books. And it's just, hey, as I say, God bless America. It's where, where else could that happen that a kid comes from where I come from to where I am? But you said it, man. It's, I have had at times been intimidated, but I've always continued to believe in myself. And even with the circumstances that, that I've gone through, I've always said, okay, how can I make that circumstance serve me? People are, are a little put off by this, but even being sexually molested by one of my dad's prostitutes from ages six, seven, and eight years old, she used to force me to perform uh, oral sex. And if I didn't do it right, she'd smack me in the face, punch me in the head and tell me to do it right. I mean, man, I'm six, seven, eight years old. I don't know what do it right means. But I do remember eight years old. I remember saying to myself one time in between the, the, the beating, I am never going to be in a position in life where I don't know what to do. And from then on, I always would ask questions because the worst thing you could tell me is no. And so I, I just believe I'll, I'll ask questions. I have built a career out of asking questions and I've built a career out of finding the answers. And, and two things that really served me, you, you mentioned a word earlier, you know, uh, failure. I am not a fan of the word failure. You, you hear this a lot in tech, fail fast, fail fast. And I think it's a dumbass phrase. And, and here's why for me, man, I've learned, I've lived my whole life trying to learn faster. So I don't want to fail fast. And there are two things that served me, two stories, and, and I'm going to share them both with you. One, I remember reading the story, and I'm going to paraphrase, of Thomas Edison when they said, okay, you failed 10,000 times in, you know, discovering electricity, the light bulb. And he said, 
did I fail 10,000 times or did I find 10,000 ways that didn't work? And it was in that moment that I thought, oh, so you actually only fail if you stop trying. So the goal, the goal is, okay, we're all going to make mistakes. We know that. Everyone's going to make mistakes. But the goal is to learn, grow, and don't repeat the mistake. So I only fail if I stop trying. So yeah, I've got a lot of failed relationships because we broke up and we're no longer together. But man, as a first-time president, oh my God, I made a ton of mistakes as a first-time president of a software company. But then did I learn? Did I grow? Don't repeat those mistakes. So that that was the first, my, my lesson in, in failure. Then here's the other one. What I quickly learned as well uh, when I became the president uh, of the company is I don't have to know all the answers. I just have to know where to get the answers from. And I dip back, I dip back to another story I heard. And I'm going to paraphrase. Henry Ford only had an eighth grade education, and he was on trial because they said he was not fit to run a company that size due to his lack of education. And they were throwing all kinds of questions at him that he obviously didn't know the answers. And then he finally stopped and he said, look, rest assured for every answer I don't know, I have someone that works for me that knows the answer. And that hit me. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. So I don't actually have to be the smartest person in the room. In fact, I don't want to be the smartest person in the room and I don't have to know all the answers. And so those two lessons have served me well, man. And so everything, it's matter of fact, it's one of our principles in our culture, Doc. Ask questions. Jason, you and I both know this. Everyone has worked at a place where you can get fired for asking too many questions. You, at Scribe, you can literally get fired for not asking enough questions. If you make a mistake and you made that mistake because you were too prideful to make them, to ask a question because you didn't want to quote unquote look dumb, you can't work here. Mm, Got to go. Got to go. I love that. I'm also a believer that people that are asking questions are in control of the conversation. So as I was, I was trying to tell Trump my story and Ironically, it's before the uh, debate. He interrupted me to ask a lot of questions. So I was like, <laughs> like, true. And I'm like, this dude's interrupting me. But he wanted to control the conversation. And, he, you know, so it, it was great. The, the other thing is, is um, you have three words that you removed that I, I read about. Hope, hope, wish, and luck. And I want you to explain why you did, because I love this, by the way. All right, man. So yes, three words I eliminated from my vocabulary, hope, wish, and luck. So hope, when I was a kid and I would hope my father would come pick me up, he never showed up. When I would hope there was something to eat when I got home, it didn't produce anything. So I stopped hoping a long time ago and I replaced hope with belief. In my opinion, belief forces execution. If you believe you can get that job promotion, then you're going to have to execute to get that job promotion. If you believe you can have that big house, then you're going to have to execute to get that big house. And, and here, this is the, I, my favorite part of this. So I got a pastor friend of mine and he comes to me and he says, look, Javon, I have been, I've said hope in my sermon 16 times last Sunday. He goes, I can't take hope out of, out of the church. And I said, okay, do you want me to hope there's a God or do you want me to believe there's a God? And he looks at me, keep in mind, he's a pastor. He looks at me and he stares and he goes, damn. <laughs> he said, I've That's never, great. he said, I never thought of it that way. 
I said, because if I believe there's a God, then I got to live a godly life. But if I only hope there's a God, well, I'm kind of halfway committed to this God thing. And so that for me, there's a big difference between hope and belief. I don't do hope. And, and, and so I, I believe. And then wish, oh, that's just a sickening word. Oh, I wish I had the, the big house. I wish I had that, that job. I wish, I wish. You can wish all day. Shit ain't going to produce anything. And, and so I'm so big on wish. I've got four kids, uh, seven, five, three, and two. And so we got a lot of birthdays at, at my house. So when we put the cake on the table and it's time to blow out the candles, we don't say make a wish at the McCormick house. We say make a goal because wishing does not produce anything. So blow out the candles, make a goal. And, and you know, we've gone through and explained what, what's a goal and so on and so forth. And then luck, luck is just a disgusting word to me because you hear people say, oh, they're so lucky. They're so lucky. No, you, you cannot be lucky without execution. There's no luck. And, and I tell this to people, what about the lottery winner? What about the, the lady that won $100 million? She's not lucky. She bought a ticket. She executed. That's right. No, look, I love that. And you mentioned something about surrounding yourself with people that are really smart, smarter than you in a lot of cases to get there. I didn't know, and this is a true story. I share it all the time. Two years ago, what EBITDA was, you know, here we have a company that is almost oh, a billion dollars. <laughs> I had to bring on, we were, we were at levels I wasn't used to. It's my third company. And the first two companies were, you know, 18 million and 36 million in annual revenue. And I didn't have to know what EBITDA was. I had a CPA guy that managed everything. We were a cash flow business. But as you got into 40, 50, 100 million in revenue, I had to hire a president that knew how to get private equity. I didn't know how to do that. I had to hire a CFO and learn what EBITDA was. And I was, I was intimidated. I didn't know all these things. But you're right. When, when you can take that intimidation out and utilize like, hey, I can learn from people and we can be a team and I want to surround myself with people smarter than me that make me better because I can be the leader and be the vision. I can be the motivational voice. I can be the one who breaks the walls down for all of us to go do things together. But this guy's, you know, this guy can bring the private equity and structure the company. This guy can be a marketing genius and this guy can be the CFO and, and keep our books under control and, and explain. I know what EBITDA means now, by the way, but I didn't <laughs> then, right? And so I was like, Oh my goodness. And I share that story because you were talking about hiring people smarter than you know you to, to learn and what Henry Ford went through, which I didn't know that story. So that's great that you shared that. But today I learned from you that not only like hope, wish, and luck, I'm going to use that. Like I'm going to share that with my kids. Every time I can talk to you know people that have been through struggles in their life and have, have not made excuses and have not hoped, wished, or felt like luck was going to get them out of the way and they've, they've grinded and they've made no excuses and they worked hard. You know, I have a, a motto, there's no elevator in life. I mean, you got to take the steps, right? It's one step at a time. And you can't set crazy goals that are unrealistic because then you're, you're going to fail. You're not going to get your satisfied quick results. You got to have baby goals to get there and, and be in the moment. And I, I think today I, I, I learned a lot, but that's what I really love the most right now is the hope, wish, and luck thing. I I love that. I'm gonna I'm gonna utilize that in my home. I'm gonna tell my kids, you gotta have goals, not not make a wish. And I agree. Like we've got to be more focused towards that as a not only as as parents, but as a generation in the world we live in, because that's what makes America so great, is we have opportunity, but you've got to go get it. Gotta go get you it. You can't man. just let it sit there. Totally. You know, I, I, I say this to people all the time, and, and, and I really appreciate the fact that you, you've said this. I, I don't care what your political affiliation is, if you're left, you're right, independent, it doesn't matter to me. But one thing is, is the absolute factual truth. 
There's a single mom right now walking 1,100 miles from Honduras right now with her two kids to try to get into this country to create a better life for herself. Regardless of how you feel about immigration, that's not the point. The point is there's a single mom with two kids walking 1,100 miles to try to get into this country to create an opportunity for herself. Man, on my worst day of being sexually molested, not knowing where my last name comes from, a pimp father sitting in juvenile on my worst day, I never had to try to get into this country. Damn it, I was born here. I have a responsibility to be successful. I don't care what anybody says. Again, no political affiliation. It is still the greatest damn country in in the world. Amen, dude. Bam to that. You're absolutely right. You said it perfectly. So with that, how can uh, folks find a little bit more about you and your company and and reach out to you because this is exciting. I got to have you on here again. Like we're just getting started. <laughs> Man, this is great. If you're looking for me personally, I'm I'm only on one social media that that's LinkedIn. I find that to be the most business professional. I'm not on Instagram, Facebook, or anything else. So if you're looking for me personally, I, I post a lot of lessons learned of mistakes that I've made through my 30 years in in business. Uh, I'll post those on LinkedIn. Uh, and then if you're looking for the company, scribewriting.com. You go there, we'll tell you everything we do, how we do it. There's videos, there's free information if you want to write the book yourself. So uh, that's how you can find me or find the company. And your company's great. I reached out to them as well. And great team. you got a great organization. And I, I can't emphasize winning the number one top company culture in America is so big, dude. So congrats to you guys for that. I know you said you're up for some other awards, CEO uh, of the city and things like that. So congrats to you, JT. Thank you for coming on the show. Guys, check it out. Any, any final words? My man, Jason, Let me if, if you would allow me, let me drop one thing here as well. Because you you've you've called me JT the whole time, and that's what I've gone by my my whole life, and and even Hala had me on as as JT. Uh, but back when the protests broke out, you know, you had a lot of people doing what I call status signaling and very shallow things. You know, Blackout Tuesday. Oh, look at us, we're a part of it too. And I thought, you know, that's complete bullshit. And, and you know, then we're having debates about a syrup bottle and, and Uncle Ben's on, on a box. And, and I found them to be very shallow status signaling type things. But where was the real change? And so it hit me that, and I'll share this with you, I remember being 20, 21 years old and trying to get on people's calendars and trying to get appointments and, and, and trying to get an interview. And I couldn't get in, couldn't get in, couldn't get in. And one gentleman got on the phone with me and he said to me, he goes, hey, I got a question. How did you get an Irish last name and a black first name? And it was the first time, I didn't even know my last name was Irish, so that was pretty funny at 21 years old. But um, it hit me that, wow, people are judging my emails, my uh, resume, and, and, and whatever else. And so I made the conscious decision to start going by JT. And I'll be damned if I didn't start getting interviews and appointments and things of that nature because it was a very ambiguous name, JT McCormick. You didn't know who that was. And I only ever wanted to be judged by my work ethic and my character. That was it. If you didn't like my skin color, I could live with that. But good God, let me get in the door. Just give me the opportunity to show. And so for, gosh, man, 48, uh, from from 21 to, to 49 years old, I went by J.T. McCormick. So back to what I was saying about when the protests broke out. 
I saw those things happening, and everyone started making a really big deal about how there were only uh, four black Fortune 500 CEOs. And I, you know, I look at those guys, and I, I man, they made it to the top of the the CEO game. So I'm a big fan of theirs. But here's what I noticed, and no one else talked about. Yes, there are only four black Fortune 500 CEOs. But here's what I noticed: their names are Kenneth Frazier, Roger Ferguson. Marvin Ellison, Renee Jones, four very ambiguous names. I said to myself, I want all of those kids of color that come from those communities that I come from to see that a Javon made it to the CEO suite. I want to bring real change where kids can see Wow, a Javon made it to the CEO, a Latavius, a Laquanda, a Lashandra, all of them can be CEOs. They can work in the workplace and see, oh, wait, they're not just JTs here. There's a Javon here. There's a Latavius here. So I made the the conscious choice to say, you know what, I'm going to start going by Javon because it's not about me anymore. It's about what can the next group of kids see that's sitting in the CEO chair. I love that. Oh, well, Javon, I appreciate that, Javon. And, <laughs> My man, and, Jason and, with the Y. And, and, hey, Jason with a Y. And I look, and I and I think that's perfect that you laid that out there because look, nobody should ever have to. It's unfortunate you had to do that to get in the door and 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 you know go through what you had to go through. But you you proved yourself. You busted your ass. You built a great company. But but yeah, now's the time where everyone should know that you're Javon, and no one should be ashamed of who they are, where they come from. They should be proud of it. They should fight for it, and they should go out and grind, and nobody should be judged based on skin color or, you know, religion or, you know, whether you went to college or not, because we put that emphasis on everybody way too much, even our own kids, and whether, you know, you have money or not. There's always a measuring stick. You know, people are people, and we're all Americans, and we all have to have each other's back. We've got one life, and we have one God and we all have to do what we need to do and not sit here and keep hurting each other and looking for reasons to tear each other down. I agree with you 100%. My man, I love it. You, I, I got I to end with what my mom said because you just said it. We all have one life. This isn't a dress rehearsal. We're not practicing for the next one. Go all out. Oh, bam. I love that. That's a wrap here on True Underdog. Thank you, Javon. Bam. And that concludes another episode here on True Underdog. If you're interested in hearing more, make sure you subscribe at iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or the YouTube channel. You can always visit trueunderdog.com. Subscribe to all of them. Make sure you check out our newest episodes coming out on Mondays and Thursdays. True Underdog, baby. Bam! 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 True Underdog. Bam! 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 B